Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. We are seeing these witch hunts, these hoaxes, as he calls them, and this is another one of them, be brought in New York, in states where they know they will get juries like this. All right, former President Trump's attorney slamming the jury verdict in the defamation case brought by E. Jean Carroll. Within the past hour, we have heard from President Trump. He called the decision absolutely ridiculous adding that believes our legal system is out of control and being used as a political weapon. We start with breaking news this evening. A New York jury has awarded E. Jean Carroll $88.3 million over claims Donald Trump defamed her. Carroll walked out of a New York courthouse like a hero. She had claimed that Trump raped her in a New York department store dressing room in either 1995 or 1996. She couldn't remember. She didn't make the charge for more than 20 years. Donald Trump called it a hoax and a con job. And a previous jury found Trump liable for sexual assault and defamation. So with that, we welcome you to The Ferris Show on television. And first tonight, things are getting wild. Think what you want of Donald Trump. Really, like him, don't like him. A lot of people have different opinions. But reasonable people can agree that it now seems impossible for him to get a fair trial in New York, and by extension, D.C., and if our legal system can't be fair, then nothing really matters. That's sort of the foundation of our democracy. So how do we know it's not fair? The jury awarded Carol $18.3 million in compensatory damages, meaning damages she suffered from her reputation and emotional distress because Trump called it a hoax. This woman did not make $18 million in her entire life. Yet somehow, Trump calling her 20-year-old claims a hoax cost her millions upon millions in reputational damage. This was an advice columnist who wrote for a magazine. She wrote a book nobody would buy unless she claimed the then president raped her. It worked. A smart boss once told me to never question a jury, and, th and that's true. The jury spoke. The question is, if a jury, any jury in New York, can be fair to Donald Trump, to do that, you'd have to have people who don't have an opinion of Donald Trump or would not allow their opinion of Donald Trump to color their time on the jury. Those people don't exist. He is the most polarizing person in American political history. New York City voted 87-12 against Trump. How do you find an impartial jury pool in that voting block? What about in D.C., where he will be tried on the election interference case? That's a criminal case, not a civil one. D.C. votes in the presidential election do not matter. They have no electoral college votes. Yet Biden won 92 to 5. Then there's Fulton County, Georgia, where Trump faces 13 state counts for trying to overturn the election. They voted 72-26 for Biden. The principle of the American justice system is that lady justice is supposed to be blind. Never mind the allegations against Trump were thin as turnip soup. Never mind she only made them when her career ended and she had a book to sell. 
I could go on. But this isn't about the case against Trump. It's about whether we are really to believe it's possible to find an impartial jury in New York or in D.C. to judge Donald Trump. Does $83.3 million in defamation damages seem fair from somebody who never made anywhere close to that amount of money? Their reputation objectively wasn't worth that. It seems like a jury and maybe a judge that hated Donald Trump. That's not how America is supposed to work, but that's what is ahead. So we're going to get to the politics in a minute, but first, Shan Wu here to discuss the legal, legal implications, former federal prosecutor, top official at the Justice Department. I know you disagree with me on this, so you're, the floor is yours. <laughs> so first of all, this was defamation, but the underlying issue was sexual assault. Having right. tried sexual assault cases, I remember a victim who said to me, I know Mr. Wu thinks we won, but it doesn't feel like a win to me. Every time that he said it was a hoax or a lie, it's like a form of assault all over again. And that's what the jury was presented with the evidence. And they didn't pull the numbers out of the air. They had expert uh, testimony that talked about how much it costs to repair uh, reputations. And then the punitive part really gets to the heart of what you're talking about, which is it's a chance to punish Trump if they found they acted with malice. And that's where that comes from. Now, I do think they can be impartial, okay, because... I've been in many cases where you're looking at juries and there's still a process. You question them, the judge asks yeah, them. No, I, I, yeah, no, I, I, get, I get that. But you, you have to think, you've never represented somebody like Donald Trump that was that oh. polarizing a figure in, in American history, right? Sure, I mean, yeah. it's, I don't know how you find 12 people who can separate out their political views and, and judge a case fairly. I know you, you've said, you know, hey, look, there's no amount of money that can make, right. that can bring back if... if if, and I say this objectively, because it was a preponderance of the evidence, it's not beyond a reasonable doubt, if she was indeed insult, assaulted, didn't tell anybody, couldn't remember what year it was, and then 25 years later made, made the accusations, if all of this is true, then I don't understand how you get to $18 million versus if no amount of money brings it back, why not a dollar? Well, you get to that because in the civil justice system, just like other kinds of torts, you know, people have been poisoned, they have car accidents... The difference here is the assault part is a very personal thing, but there are metrics for determining that, how much it costs to get healed, go to counseling, the experts who repair reputations and such. It's really the punitives that's really kind of out there in terms of subjectivity. Going forward, though, and we know how Donald Trump is going to spin this, right? Doesn't he have a point that in a place like Washington, D.C., that voted 90-whatever against him, that you can't find an impartial jury. I think that's an excellent point for him to make. You can ask for a change of venue, but I think you can find impartial juries in those areas because of the questions that are asked and the, the lawyers are going to have a lot of data on what okay. kind of jurors they want. All right, well, yeah, for, for sure. I think it's amazing as we watch the coverage of how media views whether the justice system worked or not. Here, for example, is MSNBC's coverage. Take a listen. Okay, so we don't, we don't have that soundbite. Evidently, they said that the justice system worked, though, because it didn't have anything to do with uh, guns or abortion. So suddenly we're, we're, back in the world, we're back in the world where things are okay. I, I, I think it's fascinating, though, when you think about how this case was brought. And this goes to the issue of fairness as well. She didn't pay for her own lawyers. It doesn't appear as though her lawyers were working on contingency. They were paid for by someone, who very, a, a liberal donor, the founder of LinkedIn, 
who didn't like Donald Trump. How do we how do we get to a point where people can fund lawsuits against someone because they don't like them politically? Is that a good place to be? Well, I don't know if it's a good place to be, but it's done all the time in many contexts, including political funding. Um, frankly, if you look at the Clarence Thomas situation with him getting all these benefits from conservative donors, it's a similar thing. And in the legal ethics system, nobody cares who pays the bills. What they care about is who the lawyer represents. So that is a pretty common thing to do. And it can certainly be used. There's impact litigation that's used for political for social political causes. Governors. Absolutely. Well, uh, politics ain't beanbags. It's good <laughs> to right. see you, sir. Thank you very much. The Carroll case probably won't change any minds. As if people who are going to vote for Trump suddenly decided, oh no, he defamed someone. He's lost me now as a voter. The criminal cases, though, may be a different story, and we have polling on that. New Harvard Caps Harris poll shows Trump leading President Biden by seven points, and that lead turns to a four point loss if he's convicted of conspiring to incite an insurrection. That, of course, is related to the January 6th Capitol attack. And although we've seen the indictments, and each indictment has only helped Donald Trump in the polls, after the first indictment, he went up 16%, second indictment, up 30%, third, 36%, fourth, 40%. Each time, it went up. Scott Trainer, Director of Data Science, Decision Desk HQ, co-founder of Optimist Analytics, is with us now. Scott, good to see you. The, the court has now accepted you as an expert um, in these matters. I think it's fascinating when we put the Harris poll up, right? He, he's way up, and you, way up in the national tracking poll. Then you say if he's convicted, okay, it goes way down. What if we turn that around and say what would happen to the numbers if he was acquitted? It's interesting. that I have not seen a polling question on that. That might be a good one for News Nation going forward. But I would imagine at minimum it would keep the polls where they are now. And at best, probably he'd claw back some of those independents that he loses in that Harvard X, uh, or that Harvard poll you mentioned there. I, it, it's one of those things, as a pollster, these questions are good for the news, but they're really not. They wouldn't get an A in any polling class because we actually have to see it happen. It's a hypothetical going forward. Yeah, this what I was going to say. How accurate are, are this sort of, when you ask people, hey, if this thing in the future happens, how are you going to feel? They're usually not accurate. And it's mostly because not all the circumstances are out there. The one thing I do know for sure is, is Donald Trump is going to have a say, right? Like, all these people ask these questions, um, and they, can, they get an off-the-cuff answer, but that's before they hear Donald, Donald Trump's side of the story. No matter what you think about it, he's going to have an opinion about it, and he's pretty loud microphone. He may be able to claw some of those people back. All right, so we, we put up the graphic again about what has happened after each one of the indictments, that his polling has gone up, his fundraising has gone up. Probably the person who got hurt the most by the indictments against Donald Trump was Ron DeSantis, um, in, a, in a sense. He's smiling and nodding along uh, to, to what I'm saying. <laughs> so I look at this, and I look at these numbers. Why is it then that if he gets convicted, the number the, we get a different effect than an indictment? Well, it's the interesting part is so these numbers that you're that you're looking at there. That's the among the GOP electorate, right? And that's where Ron DeSantis got hurt the most. That's where he's running right now. Where the numbers we see on on conviction, that's among the general electorate, where we have independents in there, and independents go either way on that, and they still have trust in the, in the legal system. So these independents, and I think Shen Wu may, may, may be thinking that there are those independents to find to put on a jury, right, against Donald Trump. How do those independents view how Donald Trump is treated? Does Donald Trump's complaints about things not being fair resonate with them? 
They do with some and they do with others. My favorite thing about independence is that most independents are true independents. When we look at independents, some of them tend to vote almost always Democratic or always Republican. And so what we, what we see here is, is they tend to go towards whatever they're predisposed to. An independent in Western Pennsylvania, predisposed to be a Republican voter, may identify as an independent, predisposed. An independent in California, predisposed to be a Democrat. So I think that's where we see both the conviction or non-conviction. We see these independents go towards their priors or their previous, mm. previous beliefs. All right. Is there a way right now, and I mean, you think about all of the other sort of the permutations of this, whether the case is delayed, things are thrown out, conviction, acquittal, on and on. Is there really a way to pull it? Uh, There's a way to pull it so we can talk about it, but the best time to pull it is after he's acquitted or after he's convicted. And that's really where it'll be interesting where the time of these cases are. I haven't watched a law in order to know when it is, but man, if, if there's one of these that happens beforehand, the polling after will tell us all the answers. All right, there you go. And then, and then we have the election. And then the election. All right, good to see you, Scott. Even Walter Mondale, as unpopular as he was, won his home state. Nikki Haley likely will not win her home state of South Carolina. What Republicans in the Palmetto State don't like about Nikki. She has been called the jobs governor. I hope that she will make our economy pumping again. When she was the governor of South Carolina, she turned this state on its head. Have you heard about this? The unemployment rate has dropped again. Next, religious nuns are not nuns named Sister Mary Catherine. They're the Americans who are turning away from religion. Does not going to church explain the breakdown in our society. Time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. What was at one time conceived to be impossible now has been proved on this location today as possible. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack in Soberton, Georgia, Wednesday, attending the opening ceremonies for the Lanza Jet Freedom Pines Fuels Facility, the first such plant in the world that can take ethanol and turn it into sustainable aviation fuel, which, Secretary Vilsack says, the aviation industry certainly wants and needs. At the end of the day, if we're really to uh, mitigate the consequences of a changing climate, the transportation sector clearly has to get to a net zero future. In order for it to get to a net zero future, uh, aviation uh, has to get there as well. Uh, And it can't get there without a sustainable aviation fuel. So this is a day to celebrate a very significant step forward. A step forward, he says, not just for the aviation industry, but for farmers who will be supplying the feedstock for what could be a huge and growing demand for ethanol. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the Making of America from the Jefferson Media Group. Abraham Lincoln's attendance at Gettysburg was an afterthought, as he was among the last to be invited. On the morning of November 19, 1863, Lincoln was dizzy and suffering from a fever that he had contracted after being exposed to smallpox. But that didn't stop him. In a speech lasting less than two minutes, 
but one that still reverberates around the world in simple and humble words penned by him, Abraham Lincoln revitalized the principles of equality and freedom set forth by the Declaration of Independence and defined America's Civil War. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address is regarded as one of the greatest speeches in world history. This has been The Making of America. I'm Michael Emerson, and you can visit us at jeffersonmediagroup.com. Thanks for listening to News Nation on the Go. I'm Hannah Doba, and this is America's source for engaging and unbiased news. This message is from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. VA provides free or low-cost health care to eligible veterans and covers everything from preventative to specialty care. No one knows veterans better. Sign up at va.gov, call 1-800-MY-VA-411 or visit your nearest VA medical center. Come see why 90% of patients say they trust VA for their health care. I'm Scarlett Johansson. My family relied on public assistance to help provide meals for us. These meals fueled my involvement in theater and the arts as a child, which fostered my love for acting. The Feeding America network of food banks helps millions of people put food on the table. You can join the movement to end hunger by donating, volunteering, and advocating. Because when people are fed, futures are nourished. Join the movement to end hunger at feedingamerica.org slash act now. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Maybe he was born with his witty humor. Some people bring joy wherever they go. Some whenever they go. Or as a frontier newspaper reporter. There's nothing to be learned from the second kick of a mule. Maybe he got his insights from being a riverboat captain. Never argue with a fool. Onlookers may not be able to tell the difference. Wherever he went, Mark Twain found humor all around. Humor. Pass it on. From PassItOn.com. great about a tea party is you can't buy this kind of energy. Well, I think she's a very, very successful governor. And some of the good old boys, well, maybe they don't like her too much. She stands up for conservative principles. All right, that's Nikki Haley's latest ad. Sarah Palin was the start, really, if you trace it back, of the MAGA movement. She was Trump before Trump. Remember, lipstick on a pig. She helped Haley win in 2010. She was part of Nikki Haley's campaign. Now that very same movement wants Trump. They're abandoning Nikki Haley. Haley will almost certainly lose her home state of South Carolina in a month. She trails Trump in the polls there by 30 points. Almost every elected Republican has endorsed Donald Trump, which is confusing considering her record as governor. Lowered unemployment from 11% to 5.5, led the effort to remove the Confederate flag. Some like it, some don't. She appointed Tim Scott to the Senate signed a law outlawing abortion at 20 weeks, expanded concealed carry, expanded school choice, and signed a voter ID law. Drew McKissick is the chairman of the South Carolina Republican Party, among those endorsing Donald Trump, and is with us now. Uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you. We appreciate it. Good to see you. Uh, Let's be fair about this. Is this about personality, or is it about policy? Well, first off, just to be clear, we haven't endorsed anybody. The state GOP here in South Carolina is neutral uh, in the campaigns. And that's one of the things that's enabled us to keep the first in the South primaries because people expect us to, you know, have a neutral playing field and play things straight. We are. Uh, but when it comes to, um, you know, how things are going to proceed here, I mean, South Carolina is different. It's not Iowa. It's not New Hampshire. The electorate's different here. Uh, 
Um, you know, from an issue standpoint, uh, you could look at probably the same issues that people are looking at nationally. But you could probably add, you know, seven to ten points to the conservative side of the uh, of the equation in terms of responses and where the electorate is. Uh, the issues, you know, have moved, I think, to the right here over the years uh, since she has been governor. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the highlight on issues like immigration now on the economy and on things related to trade and, you know, go down the line, the latest. No, I, 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 I get all that. And, for, and, for, and for, forgive me, we had that that you had endorsed Trump. So that that is our, our sure. mistake here. But what I'm trying to figure out is. You have a, a woman who was a popular governor. She won re-election, I think, by double digits or very close to it. Um, and yet, you've got a situation where she's just getting shellacked in the polls by Donald Trump. And I'm trying to figure out what it is about her that even though she was a popular governor, it's not even, it's not even split. It's not even close. What, what, just right. your analysis, what there is there. Sure. Well, I think that goes back to those issues that I was talking about. You know, we've got the, the, the ground here has moved over the years, if you will, more to the right, for one thing. Uh, and, you know, in, in no disrespect to, to uh, the former governor, I mean, she, the last time she was on the ballot here was in 2014. So it's been 10 years. Uh, now, both of them, both Governor Haley and uh, President Trump, have both won statewide primaries here. They both won general elections here. Uh, you know, very respectable in that sense. Yeah, but the ground, I think, has shifted to the right here over the years. Uh, and that's different. Also, the electorate here is not the same electorate that you have in those other states, as I pointed out. And look, it, you know, it, it, since 1980, nobody has gone on to win the White House from the Republican Party without winning South Carolina. I'll point that out. Uh, and, you know, that just momentum that you get here from winning that primary here is going to be critical. It's always been very hard fought over. Uh, it will be again this time. If I could, you know, give an analogy to what we're probably looking at here uh, a month from now is what we had with McCain-Bush back in 2000, you know, uh, and uh, that was a very hard. I'm glad, I'm glad you yeah. brought that up. I'm glad you brought that up. And look, you know, as, as the saying goes, politics ain't beanbags. It's a full contact sport. And we remember That's what right. happened, right, to John McCain sure. in South Carolina in, in 2000 with, with the, the robocalls accusing him of having an illegitimate daughter. It was actually a, a daughter that he had adopted. Uh, it was about as low, I think we could both agree, about as low as you get. Um, are those kinds of tactics coming, you think? Well, well, I think what you're looking at, though, is just very, very hard-fought campaigning on both sides. Okay. Typically fair, over, fair, over fair. the let years. Me, let me, I, 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 I'm glad you said that because it is now a hard-fought campaign, right? And I, I get the Donald Trump press releases. I'm getting a press release from him every day trashing Nikki Haley. And this is what I can't figure out. If things are as wide in the polls as they are, if Donald Trump is going to run away with South Carolina, which you've made a, a case for, why is he spending time elevating and attacking Nikki Haley? I'm, I, it almost makes me wonder well, if there's something in their internals that they well, realize he, he may be more vulnerable than, than, they, than we all think. I, I'm not going to get into campaign strategies and why they do messaging okay. the way they do. So, I mean, that, I'll leave that to them. I mean, what I can say is when we look around the state, we look at where, say, for instance, endorsements have gone. I mean, they have gone overwhelmingly to President Trump. All of our statewide elected officials, all but one member of Congress, uh, I think about 40 or 50 state legislators, uh, that's big, and that says something about what they're hearing within their constituencies around yeah. the state. I think that's fair. Yeah, no, no to, your, to your to your point, Nancy May said that when she when she made her endorsement 
um, of right. Nikki Haley. All right, Mr. Chairman, we appreciate it. Have a good weekend, uh, and we'll, yes, we'll see you on the trail down in South Carolina. Pew yes, Research. Sir. Take care. Yeah, thank you. Just ahead of Sunday, Pew Research has a new name for a group of Americans called Religious Nuns, not Sister Mary Catherine, not that kind of nun, not the way most people think of the word nun, but nuns, religious nuns, answered none of the above on religious affiliation surveys describing their religion as nothing in particular, atheist or agnostic. Pew Research suggests nuns believe in God or another higher power, but very few attend any kind of religious service. And the increase in nuns is staggering. That new research finds that nuns form the single largest group when Americans are asked to check a box indicating their religious affiliation. 28% now check none. That's higher than Protestants at 24, Catholics at 23. Obviously, if you combine them, you get, you get close to 50%. Here now, author of The Nuns, the book about this, Associate Professor of Political Science, Eastern Illinois University, Ryan Burge. Professor, it's good to see you. Thank you. Uh, let's help us understand what's behind this move to nuns. Yeah, in, in 1972, only 5% of all Americans were nuns. In 1991, it was 7%. Today, it's close to 30%. Amongst Generation Z, it's above 40%. I mean, there's so many things driving this, right? One is politics. We can't discount the role that politics has played now. We call it the, the God gap or the Pew gap. 45% of Joe Biden's voters in 2020 were atheists, agnostic, or nothing in particular. It was only 12% of Trump voters in 2020. So what's happened is the parties have almost sorted out religiously now. And if you're a white Christian, you're almost a Republican by default. And if you're non-religious, you're almost a Democrat by default. And that Pew gap and that political polarization is sort of running on the same lines. I'm fascinating. So uh, chicken or egg, right? Uh, does political, does it go class, your sort of, your socioeconomic class, your political affiliation, your religious affiliation, or does it, does it start with your religious affiliation and then your political affiliation and where does your socioeconomic class fit in? So interestingly, for a long time in religion and politics research, we thought that religion came first and then politics sort of lived downstream of religion. So you picked your candidate based on your theology. But in the last 10 or 15 years or so, our data has gotten better and our methods have gotten better. And now we realize people pick their religion based on their partisanship now. Partisanship has become the master identity. So now I'm going to go to a church that aligns with my politics. So if I'm anti-abortion, I'm going to find an anti-abortion church. If I'm, uh, in, if I'm pro-LGBT, I might find a pro-LGBT church or not find a church at all, which is what more and more young people are doing, are hmm. leaving religious traditions that have a traditional view of marriage. This is a fascinating conversation. I wish we could go all hour with it. Um, you know, Andrew Breitbart often and was famously quoted as saying that politics is downstream of culture in, in America. Help, where does the class divide, right? Because we talk about mm -hmm. this so often in America of, of the, the elites versus everybody else divide. Do, do the nuns typically fit in the elite class? So interestingly enough, atheists are really highly educated, have a really good income. Agnostics are not far behind them. 
But most nuns are not atheist or agnostic. Most are nothing in particular, and only 25% of them have a four-year college degree. It's the lowest of any religious group in America today. There's a whole group of Americans now, 23% are nothing in particular. They don't engage in politics. They don't have high levels of education. They don't have high levels of income. They are falling behind in every way possible, and both as a social scientist and a pastor, that's the group that worries me the most because they feel like they're being left out, left Left behind and lost in American society, they're not attached to any organization. So, so that, that twenty, to- that twenty-three, that twenty-three percent is that sort of America's working class poor, mostly white. So interesting fact: the people who are most likely to go to church right now are people with a four-year college degree making between sixteen and a hundred thousand dollars a year. So church has become a place for people who did things right, got married, had kids, got a college degree, and the nuns are increasingly becoming people who don't do those things, fall off what we call the golden path. Wow. Uh, I, I want to have this conversation every week. This is one of, one of the most interesting conversations and uh, best guests we've had in a long time. Uh, Pastor, professor, it's good to see you, sir. Thank you. Um, we'll, we'll speak soon. Coming up next, President Biden pushes for a ceasefire in Gaza after taking a beating from the left over his support of Israel. Will he cave at the worst time possible? We knew this was going to happen, right? That the Biden administration was get to the point that they were tired of supporting Israel and what went along with it. They want the Israel-Hamas war to just go away. But like most issues that require moral clarity, which this one certainly does, you can't have it both ways. And if you try to have it both ways, it makes everything worse. Axios was out with a scoop this morning. Biden tells Bibi, the prime minister, he's not in for a year of war in Gaza. Right now we're about three months in. Among the major concerns within the Oval Office is losing young voters, right? These are people who we told you at the very beginning of this, 49% of young voters sided with Hamas over this. So that's who the White House is afraid of losing. And the progressive crowd continues to ramp up pressure on the White House. So that was January 13th, big group of pro-Hamas, pro-Houthi rebels tried to break into the White House and tear down the fence. Still no arrests have been made. But we wanted to come over and show you exactly what the ground truth is and why what President Biden is asking is probably going to backfire on him. Here's what's happening right now uh, in Israel. Remember the very northern part of Gaza is where the Israelis went in first. Gaza City, that's where the the famous hospital was. Well, as Israel moved its forces south, Hamas is already re-infiltrating and using the tunnel systems that the Israelis haven't blown up to once again move back in to Gaza. And there's no civilians or fewer civilians right now in northern Gaza and Gaza City. Makes it a lot easier for Hamas. Okay, the Israelis have to come in like this because the Israeli supply lines get attacked when they are inside of Gaza. And remember, Gaza's you know, what, 10, 15 miles across in certain places, but still that's a long way to be able to continue to support combat operations. And Hamas, Islamic Jihad, as we've told, told you and shown you, continues to have the tactical advantage there inside of Gaza. This is new IDF video 
of their clearing operation. So remember, as these soldiers are walking along, each one of these houses, each one of these office buildings can have Hamas snipers. They can use drones to drop things down onto the Israelis. And still, you see exactly the kind of close combat they're engaging in. This is very similar to what uh, happened in World War II, probably the last time we saw this kind of urban combat, house-to-house, street-to-street combat. So it's going to take the Israelis an awful long time. We'll go back to the map here. This video that you just saw was from IDF clearing operations down in Yunis, which is another very densely populated area. And as all of the people have been pushed, the civilians have been pushed farther south, it gives Hamas a lot more places to hide within civilian populations. So the pressure on the Israelis to wrap things up with the U.S. election timeline, well, it's probably just going to embolden Hamas because Hamas realizes it can hang out and hold out for longer until pressure on Israel grows. Former ambassador at large for counterterrorism, Nathan Sales, is with us now. Mr. Ambassador, thank you. I'm wondering, something like this doesn't leak out of the White House uh, unintentionally, shall we say. Why make it public on the Israelis that this is being done? Well, Leland, thanks for having me. I think this is a bat signal for the president's progressive base. They've been very disappointed with how the White House has stood fairly firmly with Israel. Um, And I think they're starting to wonder uh, whether the president is truly committed to their progressive ideas. And let's be clear, the the president doesn't have a great track record of standing up to his left, Uh, whether it's abortion, whether it's climate, whether it's diversity, equity and inclusion. You know, Joe Biden has really reinvented himself over the past five years. He's no longer, you know, working class Joe. He's faculty lounge Joe. He he has given the left everything they've asked for. And I think... Yeah, I, I, I get all that. What I'm wondering, though, and, and this is the political reality, right, is that he's trapped by the far left and he's also trapped by the center, which largely supports Israel, um, especially the Jewish vote, which is going to be critical to him in places like Pennsylvania. We started by saying on issues of moral clarity, you can't have it both ways, right? You can't enjoy the support of the America's Jewish community and also earn the support of those who want to wipe Israel off, off the map. Is there a middle ground here in support of Israel? Is there a sort of telling the Israelis privately, get this done and publicly telegraphing what you suggested? Yeah, I I think everyone has an interest in this war being concluded as soon as possible. Operationally, the Israelis don't want to have their soldiers exposed to harm. From a humanitarian standpoint, the longer the bombs are falling, the worse that is for Palestinian civilians. So we, we all want this war to be over as quickly as possible. But there are good reasons to conclude it quickly, and there are bad reasons. And the president's political fortunes and the electoral calendar in the United States are terrible reasons. So what the United States should be doing is backing Israel to the hilt, giving it the weapons and giving it the diplomatic cover it needs to wrap up as quickly as possible. The sooner we're done with this, the better it is for everyone. No, no question there. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the hostages, right? More than 100 hostages still underground somewhere Uh, In Gaza, the Israelis say they have found evidence of some of the hostages. It's very likely that the female hostages are being sexually assaulted on a daily basis uh, by Hamas. 
there, there was a, a possibility of a deal. The Israelis put out a two-month ceasefire in return for all the hostages. Hamas said no. The ceasefire now crowd uh, was oddly silent on that. And now there is negotiations. Once again, the CIA director uh, is in Europe uh, and the Middle East. You've done these negotiations before. Um, does the fact that Israel now feels U.S. support is tenuous uh, help Israel? Does it encourage them to be more uh, giving in there or more flexible? Or does it only harden their resolve to finish the job against Hamas inside Gaza? Well, look, when America goes wobbly, that's bad for our allies, and it's the best thing that could happen to our adversaries. If Hamas detects the slightest bit of daylight between Washington and Jerusalem, they're going to exploit it. And what that means is, why agree to terms right now that they see as disadvantageous if they can hold out for better terms Mm -hmm. later on, once the White House has pulled the tablecloth from under uh, the Israelis. So the, the, the White House is actually engaging in a self-defeating strategy because it gives the wrong message to Hamas. It tells them, hold out for more. You know what, Leland? It's the same thing we saw in Afghanistan when the president said, we're getting out, come hell or high water. What do you think the Taliban did? No right. reason for them to negotiate. It was just fight until they won on the battlefield. Yeah. Look, oftentimes when you go wobbly on issues of moral clarity, it doesn't end well. That's just sort of why why there are issues of moral clarity. Ambassador, thank you. Have a great weekend, sir. We always appreciate the expertise. Speaking of the weekend, something to watch this weekend, Masters of the Air, one man's quest to make sure lessons of the greatest generation aren't forgotten. Will America listen? In terms of winning the war and flying war-winning missions, it was all about doing your job properly. Every guy I interviewed said, I'm not a hero. I just did my job. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. They flew near suicide missions from Britain into the teeth of Hitler's air defenses. The air is soft, but 40 years ago at this moment, the air was dense with smoke and the cries of men and the air was filled with the crack of rifle fire and the roar of cannon. President Reagan there honoring the men of D-Day that Masters of the Air made possible. Author of the original book, Masters of the Air, Donald Miller, is with us now. I'm just wondering, sir, and congratulations on this and the success. Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, The Pacific, and now your book. Were you surprised when they picked you? Very surprised. Uh, I had worked with both of them before. Um, they did a, uh, of course, Band of Brothers and followed it with the Pacific. And I worked extensively on the Pacific and then worked with Hanks on a number, on two other films. So I knew they had my book. Uh, somebody told me Hanks was reading it. And uh, and then Kurt Sadusky, one of the producers. What, what do you think it was about your book? Because there's so many stories from World War II, The Greatest Generation. What is it about Masters of the Air that captivated them and that will captivate the audience? 
Well, I, I think it's a different way of looking at warfare, and it's a different type of warfare. Um, men had never flown at this high, four miles high. They never flown at four miles high. Everything was new about the air war, the bomber war in World War II. There'll never be another bomber war. Uh, it's, it's, it's missiles and atomic bombs now. So it, it was one of a kind, and everything was experimental. And uh, guys had to learn as they went along, and the mistakes they made the Air Force made were horrendous. That's fascinating. I think about this story in terms of the greatest generation because Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, when Ambrose's book came out, right, there were still a lot of members of the greatest generation around to talk about these stories with. I'm thinking about yeah. you know, really the, the stars of, of, say, Band of Brothers was, was still alive, Major Winters. Um, and now so many of them are gone. I'm wondering what lessons you hope this generation, our generation, my generation, and the younger generations take from this film and from your book? I think it's it's their patriotism, certainly, their love of country. But in terms of winning the war and flying war-winning missions, it was all about doing your job properly. Every guy I interviewed said, I'm not a hero. I just did my job. But if everybody in the plane, it's a 10-person crew, if everyone handles his responsibility, his responsibilities well, we're going to get through this mission. We're going to bomb the target, and we might survive. You were expected to fly 25 missions, later 35. If you got 11 missions, your chances of surviving statistically were zero. Wow. Uh, and... God, and they, and they still went up every every day. This this speaks to that. I, I we did a thing about this uh, yesterday, and I put up a picture of my my grandfather who served under yeah. under Eisenhower. Um, and I got this tweet back, Mr. Leland. How do you think veterans of this generation, some of whom have multiple deployments going back to back, feel when we refer to World War II vets as the greatest generation? Who gave more? Think about that. And I think the the answer to that, I want to see what you would think about this, is that it's not that it's a difference but the sacrifice of any one soldier, sailman, sailor, airman, or marine, and we honor them and we're grateful for them. But it's that the greatest generation, it was across the whole generation, whereas Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, for so many Americans, they didn't even know anybody uh, who was overseas during those wars. I never liked the term, but when, when, when you phrase it like that, that elegantly, and talk about it as a communal and a national effort, a whole-souled effort by the entire nation, where 98% of Americans who are over the age of 18 are somehow involved, somehow participating in the war. You lived inside a world of war. Your father did and my father did. It yeah. was a just a uh, generation. Mr. Mr. Miller... Congratulations, um, both on the book and then now on the, the miniseries. We're all looking forward to watching it, and I'm grateful for you, you, you keeping those lessons alive. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, sir. First told you about this story in War Notes. That's our daily newsletter. It's free. comes out at 4 p.m. every day. gives you our look at the most important stories of the day. You can respond with your thoughts there at warnotes.com or on social media at Leland Vitter. Next, a case of mistaken identity leads to a living hell for a Texas grandfather. Turns out he got arrested based on facial recognition software. Why police refuse to stop using terribly flawed technology. All 
right, the latest trend in crime fighting is running surveillance footage of crimes through massive photo databases using facial recognition software. The problem is that it rarely works as expected, and it often misidentifies suspects. That's allegedly what happened to a Texas grandfather arrested for a sunglasses hut robbery that occurred 1,200 miles away from him. He was brought back to Texas 1,200 miles on an arrest warrant for a crime he did not and could not have committed. What happened to him in jail was horrific. Former Detroit Police Chief James Craig told the Innocence Project, quote, if the city's officers were to use facial recognition by itself, it would yield misidentifications 96% of the time. Host of MIT's Data Science Podcast, Data Nation, also professor at Washington University in St. Louis, Liberty Vittert. Uh, you wrote your PhD thesis on this stuff. What I can't imagine is, why are we using something, and fighting crime is a noble idea, that's only right 4% of the time? Look, here's what you have happening. You have police chiefs going to police conventions and getting sold by very sophisticated salesmen this newfangled facial technology without any real training to the police officers. And we're doing our police officers an enormous disservice. Think about this. You're a police officer. You're out there. You're putting your life on your line. Your body camera is telling you there's a 65% chance that this guy was a cop killer. What are you going to do? Go, oh, well, it's only 65%, so I guess I won't, you know, really use aggression or force. I mean, come on. We're putting our police officers in terrible, terrible positions, which inevitably puts the citizens of the United States in dangerous positions. Okay, so where, and we're, we're watching sort of how facial recognition software works. There's times that it worked really well, right? It was during um, one of the bombings in in, I think it was in Boston, when it was facial recognition software that was used to track the suspects um, that moved around. There's applications where it works really well, and then it works terribly when it comes to identifying suspects in crime. Why is that? So there's a very clear study that went on at MIT that looked at the three major providers of facial recognition software to both stores and police across the country. And what is completely clear is that when it comes to a white male, like in the Boston bombing, it's really, really accurate. Almost 99% of the time it's accurate. But as you become a female or you have a darker skin tone, the ability for facial recognition to be able to identify you goes down to the 60% area. And you have to remember 60%, 50-50 is a toss of the coin as to whether it's that person or not. So the facial recognition software was trained mostly on white males. It took old photos from uh, universities, um, people who agreed to participate in these kind of studies, and it just happened to be done on white males. So it's excellent mm. at being able to predict white males, but you get into a darker skin tone or a female, and it's terrible. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And is, can you retrain it, or is it just sort of where, where we're at? I mean, we can retrain it, but it's going to take getting many, many pictures of darker and oh, females to be able to train on, which we just don't have yet. So the police are still using this old software. Fascinating. Liberty, thank you very much. Uh, we've, we've gone out to the folks in Texas, uh, this man who was uh, wrongfully arrested. See, we can't get him on the show. Have a great weekend, Liberty. Have a great weekend at home. I'll see you on Monday. Here's Chris.